Have you ever thought, are those I serve safe? What about, do those I serve feel supported? Or even more specific, they may have gone through some trauma, but I'm not quite sure if that's considered enough trauma. Well, these are very important questions if we're to best serve those who are trusting us and relying on us for a safe environment in which they can work and learn. And that's exactly what we learned from Rachel Archambault in this episode of Seeing to Lead. See, this is the first of two episodes on this topic. The reason it's two episodes is because Rachel gives us so much information on the six pillars of trauma-informed practices. So we talk about safety, trustworthiness and transparency, peer support and mutual self-help, collaboration and mutuality, empowerment and voice and choice, and cultural, historical, and gender issues. Way too much to cover in one episode, but boy, we sure do cover it over the two. So if you were ever wondering if you're providing a safe environment, if you're building trust through transparency, this episode's for you. If you want to hear the other pillars, make sure you tune in to next week's episode. But before I go on too long, this episode is full of smaller, seemingly so obvious tips to help make our environments feel safer, more transparent, and filled with trust, thanks to Rachel Archambault. But don't take my word for it. Let's hear from Rachel on Seeing to Lead. The reality is most of you as administrators or educators, when you walk into a classroom, you're not going to be able to look a student in the face and know what trauma they've experienced or if they're currently going through trauma, they previously or will go through trauma. We don't know that. So trauma-informed care is a way, it's a mindset of how can I reduce possible harm that I might cause as an educator, as a provider, as a human to the person that's in front of us. So that could be for a student, that could be a staff member, it could be your employee. It doesn't have to be just for students that have undergone this. Dr. Chris Jones here and welcome to Seeing to Lead, a show designed to help leaders increase their ability to effectively support, engage, and empower their staff through intentional practices so that they create an environment where everyone reaches their greatest level of success. On Seeing to Lead, communication rules the day as we hear voices from both teachers and leaders in an effort to examine perspectives, highlight misunderstandings, and provide steps to ultimately bridge the gap between what teachers need and provide through thoughtful dialogue. This show is about amplifying voices, creating understanding, and providing information to help everyone continually improve. I want to personally thank you for taking the time. Now, let's get to getting better. Rachel Archambault, CSLP, is a speech-language pathologist who specializes in trauma-informed care. Rachel found TIC after experiencing a traumatic event at work on February 14th, 2018. She was looking for ways to help her students who had just undergone trauma as well as herself. She realized that not only would this help for those specific students, but that TIC could be applied in any setting, any population, and with any age group. 
As an SLP, she offers a unique perspective to how trauma-informed care falls under her professional scope of practice as well as for other healthcare professionals and educators. I'm really excited to talk to Rachel today because of the idea of trauma-informed care. Um, Oftentimes, we get mixed up with the idea that there has to be a major traumatic event that we all realize. And as a result, we miss the opportunity to really help those students and teachers and leaders who have experienced trauma that we don't know about. So, Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about trauma-informed care. I think this is going to be a great conversation because what I always try to do with this show, and you know, we spoke briefly pre-show, but we spoke before that to uh, to make sure that we offered something valuable. And I'm really excited because you have experience in this, and this is something that you haven't been shy about that you've talked about, and it's been a passion. So, could you just tell the listeners how you arrived at that? How you got to realize that this is such an important, crucial aspect of students, teachers, and anybody really in a school community? Totally. So the reason that I got into trauma-informed care is sometimes how people are exposed to it. And it's after a traumatic event. And it just so happened that my traumatic event happened while I was at work at a school, specifically a high school. And it was a very nationally public international event that we had assistance from all over the globe that wanted to help us because of how public it was and how heartbreaking it was. And many of you might know the school name Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. It's located in Parkland, Florida. So if that rings a bell, it makes sense. If it doesn't, that also makes sense because there are a lot that keep happening. But basically, after this traumatic event, I was 23 years old, 25 years old, 25 years old. And I didn't know what to do to help my students Uh, I'm a speech pathologist. I didn't know how to care about working on a lisp or working on a a student as one grade level below reading because they didn't feel safe on campus. I didn't feel safe on campus. And uh, our whole community had just undergone trauma. The staff, every single person that's there could have experienced trauma. And Once I found trauma-informed care, I realized that it didn't just have to be applicable for the specific event that happened at my school or trauma at a school. It should be utilized not knowing what trauma people have gone through. So when the reality is most of you as administrators or educators, when you walk into a classroom, you're not going to be able to look a student in the face and know what trauma they've experienced or if they're currently going through trauma previously or will go through trauma. We don't know that. So trauma-informed care is a way, it's a mindset of how can I reduce possible harm that I might cause as an educator, as a provider, as a human to the person that's in front of us. So that could be for a student, that could be a staff member, it could be your employee. Uh, It doesn't have to be just for students that have undergone this. I did find that by utilizing trauma-informed care, it created a relationship with these students to be able to provide those services more quickly than if they weren't given trauma-informed care mindset. I mean, you brought up a couple of really good things there. And some of the things that stick out to me is the idea you never know what somebody else is going through. So tread carefully and keep an open mind. But we have this thing called handle with care, where in working with local law enforcement, if something happens in the community overnight, 
we get a phone call so that in the morning we know that a student might be coming in, whether it's a domestic issue or something that occurred. In the idea of, you know, to use your phrase, reducing possible harm. But one of the things that sticks out to me is the idea of trauma seems to be somewhat nebulous because it's personalized. And so what seems like it would not be traumatic to one of us is incredibly traumatic to somebody else. And I know you talk about, or you've talked about the six pillars of trauma-informed care when we spoke earlier. Could you walk us through those maybe? Because it seems like something that needs to be embedded in our everyday practices. Totally. When I am trying to assess whether I am being a trauma-informed person, professional, educator, I am evaluating, am I providing the pillar of safety to this person that's in front of me? So for example, a student. Does that mean they feel physiologically or physically safe, emotionally safe? That is something for them to decide, not for me to put on them. Like, oh, that student feels safe in my classroom. That's not up for me to decide. I can try to provide things to make them feel safe, but it's on the student to decide whether I am providing a safe environment for them. Then we have trustworthiness and transparency. I could talk about this pillar all day with what has transpired at my specific school, how transparency directly correlates to increased trust. When you are transparent, there is more trust available. And we have peer support and mutual self-help, which can contribute to empowerment, establishing safety, a vehicle for building trust. Then we have collaboration and mutuality. Those two kind of go together. And it's especially in my position as a provider, as a speech-language pathologist, and educators as well. Sometimes we feel in a power position. And this is more saying that we need to be on the same team as our students. We need to not have that power imbalance all the time because that can contribute to not feeling safe. And we have empowerment, voice, and choice. And then the final one is cultural, historical, and gender issues. So these pillars are a way of analyzing, am I providing these core pillars And by providing these pillars, it contributes to an environment that learning is able to be done, that relationships are able to be built on, resilience is able to be built. So when a traumatic experience does happen or may happen, they are able to cope with those feelings more by being provided all of these pillars. Okay, so... The six pillars, just to make sure that I got these right, so that because I think they're important. I want the listeners to make sure they hear them. The first one is safety. The second one is trustworthiness and transparency. The third one is peer support, mutual self-help. Yes. The fourth one is collaboration. The fifth one is mutuality, or that goes with collaboration. That goes with collaboration. And then the fifth one is empowerment, voice, yeah. and choice. And then the final one is cultural, historical, and gender issues. Awesome. Thanks. So obviously, I mean, you mentioned these six pillars. I want to walk through these because if we could, well, let's put it this way. If all schools were practicing these and we had a handle on these, then we wouldn't have any problems in our schools as far as safety goes and the idea of trauma-informed teaching goes and care goes. So safety, I really like what you said about you can't tell somebody they're safe, be it physical, be it physiological. They have to say that for themselves or own that themselves. How do leaders support teachers in doing that for students? And how do teachers support students in that fashion? Let's take it down to the school level. What's that look like? 
I think part of that would actually tie into other pillars. So collaboration, right? So part of the big thing for safety was when the administrators were making unilateral decisions on what made the school safe without asking the staff, who then asked the students, how would you feel safe? Like I think of this upside down triangle of the students being on the bottom and then the staff and then the administrators all the way up of people making decisions. So when one of those levels made a decision without considering the people who they are directly working with, that created a lack of safety. When they decided, oh, I am being safe by doing this without having that collaboration with the people they provide for, safety was not actually able to be established because they weren't being considered. So I almost like to think the idea of meaningful collaboration, because when I think collaboration, there's a lot of ways people can label it that it isn't authentic or meaningful. So I I assume you're speaking more than a survey or more than a meeting here or there than a decision being made. Yeah, I think it needs to be an ongoing discussion, especially I could see because we got surveys all the time of, do you feel safe when? And at the same time, you mentioned when we started talking about the pillars, it's an individual's you know perception of trauma. So there is no way that you can please everyone. But when you send out a survey and you see that it's a 75-25 split or a 90-10 split, there are certain things that we can do or we can provide all of those options to make someone feel safe. And I just think of, uh, from a provider perspective, when I had students in my office that were, you know, they were so dysregulated, whether their leg was bouncing up and down or they were you know, looking around the room and they weren't able to concentrate. The way that I am teaching now is to look at that behavior and say, oh, that's not ADHD that I'd typically be able to pathologize. That could be a trauma response. And it's so easy for a teacher to be like, pay attention, pay attention. When they're not really seeing that if someone does not feel safe, we cannot regulate uh, emotions. We cannot learn. It's like the Maslow's hierarchy. So it's just understanding that other behaviors might kind of let you know that something might be going on and to consider what else would be going on. That's excellent because safety, as I look at the six pillars, I, and I, I want to touch on these pillars and what they look like in practice. But when I think about safety, I was initially thinking, oh, well, that's easy. You know, we don't have to spend a lot of time in that. And as you explain it, it's, there's a lot to it and there's a lot to unwrap around the idea of safety. and. From what I see, how much it ties into the trustworthiness and transparency. Because obviously, if somebody trusts somebody and there's transparency going on, that the trust level goes up and they, you would think, feel more safe. But when you get, when you're doing surveys, how transparent are leaders with surveys? And a way they can really help that is to make sure, one, that they use the data in a very public way. And that they're honest about the data where it goes. But so about trustworthy and trans, trustworthiness and transparency, can we talk a little bit about that? That to me seems a little more ah. difficult to give some examples of in the classroom. It, it, it's difficult. So some examples that I can think of directly after what happened at my school was transparency directly led to us trusting the administration. We felt things were kept from us. And that happens to schools all the time 
without a traumatic event. But for people that have undergone trauma, it is very important to feel in control. That ties back into safety and every other one of the pillars. So when a decision was not released to us or kept from us, possibly with good intentions to, you know, not scare us or anything, it ended up that we did not trust the administration because we always felt that they were keeping something from us. So the more transparent that you could be with your staff, with student, uh, staff to students also helps the situation. So I think of, uh, fire drills and Fire drills, many times the staff is aware of them, that they get an email saying, hey, remember today we have a drill at 9.30 in the morning or something like that. The students are not offered the same transparency a lot of times, or the staff is not offered the transparency. Well, with our school specifically, most of the people that were working there or the students that went to school there were terrified of the fire alarm. So it became more transparent in order to prevent triggering the entire community but then uh, when all the students graduated, they removed that ability for us to know that. So they kept, they started ringing the fire alarms again. So when they hid that from us, or it feels like they're hiding it from us, when the administration is just saying, we're just getting back to normal. This is what every other school in the nation does. We do these. We don't have to tell you things. We're getting back to normal. So by not being transparent, and you can think of transparency as a whole bunch of things, but that's just one example of when it's perceived as things are being kept from you, you cannot trust. And as a provider, if my students can't trust me, we're not going to have this open relationship. It's not going to feel safe to them. And that can contribute to trauma. Well, you bring some things up that really hit home with me <laughs> as I'm thinking about it. Right. <laughs> I mean, the idea that after those students graduated, that's just kind of missing the boat a little bit on the idea that it wasn't just the students that experienced the trauma. But some of the things, so talking about sharing, and you said that sometimes administrators or leaders don't share certain things with teachers. Teachers don't share certain things with students because it might bother them or something like that. So how do we, do we just share everything and say, I know this is going to be troublesome, but I don't want to hide it from you. I want to be honest. So that is what has been working well at a school that has experienced trauma. So the administrators will send out a list. So say uh, regarding the trial, typically our school would get a notification or our principal would get a notification that something big is going to be happening. I want to let you know first. And to, in the headline, you know, the subject of it, it has to say urgent, sensitive, like somewhat of a trigger warning. Because if this information came out, the staff would say, you kept this from me. I know you know this. Why didn't you? So it contributes again to a lot. It's distrust. And in order to foster trust, they need to be very open. But I don't think you can say everything needs to be shared. I think the mindset that you need to have is who would this harm if I did not express this? Who would this harm if I did not disseminate this information? And then you can kind of backtrack and say, what are the intentions behind this? It's constantly evaluating what the information is. And again, who what who would be harmed by this, by not knowing this information? And that's something, you know, with the fire alarm piece that you mentioned, that you don't think about who sets that off. And I know a couple individuals as teachers that are set off by the fire alarm, so they're notified early. And there's certain students in the population that we notify early. Right. When we know a fire alarm's going on. And sometimes 
The school doesn't know. The fire department comes in and pulls the lever. Right. But what would be the harm? I think about what would... It almost comes down to a measurement of whether it's more harm or more good. Yes. Like people know how to get out of the building. Yes. That's not an issue. So, and it's not a surprise, especially for us. We have a long driveway. So, you know, the classrooms already see the fire trucks pulling up the driveway. So they know, so they text their friends and they have it. But we don't really, we don't really tell any teachers. And it reminds me of a story. So when we had COVID and we were out of school, we went around to all the houses of the seniors to gift them graduate sign yard signs. And what we did is we drove around with the yard signs and we put it out on social media that we're going to be showing up and everything. And we went around with the police and the fire engines and they honked the horns, put the lights on. And when I was explaining this to somebody that is part of a mastermind group I'm in, they said, did you check if that bothered anybody if or if yep. they had any? And I, I sat for a minute, you know, after I get auto over the, no, but it's a great idea. I sat for a minute and I was like, wow, I didn't. And somebody that would have experienced that, a house fire. I mean, who would think of that? And now they moved into a house and here come the fire engines with the lights and everything. Yeah. Not that was an issue, but that's a very real thing that I didn't think about. Cool. And I think of a very similar, I mean, I have fire truck and police siren stories, but when we came back the next school year, uh, we had a new administration and they wanted to pep us up, right? So they had the drum line for the school meet us in the uh, auditorium. And it was not, oh, here comes the drum line. It, they just started. So it panicked every staff member. It, people were running out of the room and everything. And that's the kind of thought that it's like, wouldn't you assume that if this population is terrified by noises, maybe that is a poor decision? So who could this harm? The entire, you know, staff. So I think of uh, fire, fire drills, fire alarms as well. When we are on a plane flying somewhere and turbulence happens, they don't put emergency sounds on, right? The goal is to keep us calm because when you are dysregulated, you cannot make good decisions. It's m- much harder to make good decisions. So what do they do? They come on the intercom and very calmly they say, we're going to exit the building now. And uh, when you go into other spaces other than schools, the fire alarms are often very like pleasant sounding and not scary sounding. Why is it that in schools we have this scary sound that people can't think? I think that leads to many more mistakes than if it were just like, bing. So we have to think of other areas that have fire drills or other emergency alarms that are not blaring like that because it is traumatic for some people re-traumatizing for some people, but also if the goal is to get people out calmly, having a dysregulating sound like that is not going to achieve the goal. That is such a brilliant example of the plane. If anybody that's listening to this has ever been on a plane, that's so true. You hit turbulence and everybody gets nervous, right? You, your chest gets a little tight and you're, and they come on, oh, we're just experiencing a little bit of turbulence, you know, but meanwhile, you're trying to keep your drink on your tray. Yeah. But, and it just helps, it helps keep the situation calm where people kind of look back and forth and almost laugh at the person saying, we're just experiencing a little bit of turbulence as you're getting bounced around. If you're up in the air and doing that constantly and the alarms are going off, that is going to create mass hysteria. And that is not the goal. So 
it, it's interesting that we have all these examples of how to tolerate emergency situations and we don't do that in the school when students are the most vulnerable that don't should not have the coping strategies. Their brains are still developing and everything. And especially in schools now, when it is such a sensitive topic about things that could go wrong in a school, we need to be able to calm very easily. So having these emergency sounds and just things that scare people and drills constantly is contributing to more trauma and more chaos. Supporting your teachers and students seems to be a struggle. They just don't seem to be engaged. You wish they would take more responsibility for their learning and culture of the building, but they just don't seem to be empowered enough to do it. So my question is, have you checked out the book Seeing to Lead yet? It's all about creating a true educational experience where learning, growth, leadership, and community take center stage. Full of strategies and resources, Seeing to Lead is about attaining that goal by employing a model that supports, engages, and empowers all individuals to become leaders themselves. Pick up a copy today at seeingtolead.com. That's S-E-E-I-N-G-T-O-L-E-A-D.com. Remember, you don't become a leader and then decide you need to support and recognize others more than yourself. It is the moment you realize it's about supporting and recognizing others that you become a leader. Seeingtolead.com. So when you're talking about people missing the boat, for lack of a better, not to sound crass, but just not putting thought into some of these things that could go wrong. One of the pillars is peer support and uh, mutual self-help. Where does that fit in? And how does that play out in a school setting where maybe we're, you know, we're still ringing the harsh fire alarms with the lights and the subsonic sound and all of those things. And we're just not making the best decisions we possibly could for whatever reason. What's that look like in schools? I think it's very important for the organization, whether that's the school district, to understand the importance of peer support, self-help. And self-help, I also think, goes into self-advocacy. So what we have, I mean, we're very lucky to have this on our campus that we have a wellness center. So many other schools are not given this, but it's, it's stocked with social workers and therapists and everything. So that way, when students are triggered, dysregulated, or just need someone to talk to, they are able to take themselves to the wellness center. That is not available at all schools. But what this does is by being able to self-advocate as a student, being able to see a peer who is their safe person, being able to be with that person to co-regulate is a way to reduce the risk of re-traumatization, to help them with coping strategies. Peers are so important with healing. And it's really interesting because although I'm not a peer in age with my students, which uh, I'm kind of, kind of close in age, but I would get a lot of calls from parents saying like, I don't understand why my student who you don't even have has picked you as their safe person or will talk to you about what happened. And I'm like, because I went through it. I'm technically a peer that whether it's my age or the way I talk or the comfort level, they are able to talk to me as a peer about what happened. And that is not, you know, administrators might not be on that level. Parents might not be on that level. It's who they deem on the same level. So we have groups, support groups uh, across the nation of similar 
traumatic experiences because, so say a car accident, you might have a 15-year-old in that support group and you might have an 80-something-year-old in in that support group because they are peers with what they have gone through. So it is very important to have that available for them, whether in the community, we have with our community, we have something called Eagle Taven. So any of our community members are able to go and get some services or have activities to do together. And it is a way of providing them a safe space to work with peers and help them with their trauma. I think I'm thinking about why you're talking about this, because when we talk about self-help and peer support, is there a pre-trauma, a post-trauma where some of these pillars make more sense? Or like, I wonder, is some of this, do some of the pillars almost become like, okay, well, that one's so low, you need to build back on that one because now you're post-trauma. Or if you've done better pre-trauma, you might not be in the same situation because there there are traumatic events that occur that nobody has control over. So you just have to, which I think is one of the reasons for these six pillars, because if you do this in a proactive manner, it it will help with a traumatic event when it occurs. But I think about the peer support piece and when I hear peer support and I hear peer check-in centers, like we have a, a student support center at my school that it, that sounds much like the wellness center you're talking about. We have a couple different areas for that. But it sounds like that's good for post-trauma. Wow. Now, as I told you in the beginning of this, there is plenty of information that Rachel goes over and helps us out with the six pillars of trauma-informed care. Really stood out to me the difference between big T and little t trauma and how we really have to look away from that if we're going to move forward and authentically, meaningfully support people by making a safe, transparent environment. Look, this information is so useful anywhere. I want you to do me a favor. Re-examine your current practices. Take some of the advice that Rachel gives us in this episode and then tune in next week to hear the rest of the pillars. I promise you won't be disappointed. As a matter of fact, why don't you grab one person and tell them to listen to this episode and then make sure they tune in for the second episode. Because if you do that for one person and then they do it for one person, we're going to create an overall better environment and experience for everyone. And after all, isn't that the whole point of serving others? Thanks for listening. And don't forget to take action on that challenge I left you. Well, that's a wrap, but not the end. Next step, be sure to take action on something you heard here today. Hey, thanks for listening to the Scene to Lead podcast. If you would like to connect for any reason, email me at drchrissj at gmail.com or catch me on Twitter at Dr. C.S. Jones. If you've gotten any value from the Scene to Lead podcast today, you can help me and other leaders create a world-class environment through a teacher-centric approach by subscribing to the show, leaving an honest rating and review, and sharing this episode on social media with your most valuable takeaway. Also, one last thing. Have you had a chance to pick up my latest five-star rated book yet? Grab your copy of Seeing to Lead anywhere you buy books or at seeingtolead.com. 
That's S-E-E-I-N-G-T-O-L-E-A-D.com, where you can learn more and continue to improve. Now go have a successful week. 